encourage you to pray that direction. And, um, and actually, before we uh, uh, read in our, our passage today, by the way, we're going to be reading in First Chronicles chapter 16, and if you're using the Pew Bible, that is page 347, and so if you would be opening that up. But um, I was hoping to have better numbers for you on this, but uh, we have a project going on right now where we are doing some repairs and, and uh, some alterations on the roof. Uh, particularly back here, kind of over the foyer and in that region. And it's in connection with that that we're having our heating issue. And so um, it's kind of part of the process, and it's an unfortunate one that we didn't really uh, foresee. But we would, uh, we would encourage you to be praying for us during this process and praying for the church and provision for the project. When we envisioned this project about a year ago, um, costs were different than they are now, and shipping times were different than they are now. And, uh, and we don't have control over that stuff. And so we would, uh, we would appreciate your prayers. The elders kind of agonize over this stuff. And, and um, uh, so if you would bring this project and us to the Lord, uh, we would appreciate it over these next uh, couple of months. It should be, should be knocked out. Uh, we are reading today in First Chronicles chapter 16. And uh, probably you don't spend a ton of time in in Chronicles, perhaps, and, uh, but our passage today really is a psalm that finds uh, the various pieces of this psalm written by David in uh, different uh, psalms in the book of Psalms in your Bible, uh, but it's all together here in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, and so uh, we're going to uh, read this passage. I'm just going to read the psalm uh, starting in verse 8, and I'll finish down in verse 34. This is God's Word. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Israel, His servant. Children of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that He made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which He confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number, of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. 
Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for You that You have created us though You didn't need to, though, uh, though we should have been destroyed when we fell into sin, You have sustained us. We're grateful. Though it would have been enough had You simply sustained us in our lives, allowing us to take another breath, though we are rebels at heart, you also sent your Son to redeem sinners like us, to give us peace with you. And we are grateful. And we worship you this morning. And we are thankful. In this season of thanksgiving, we of all people ought to be thankful, and we are. This morning, as we look at this passage, as we read these words from David, a man who was uh, thankful as well, I pray that you would minister to us. I pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in the hearts of your people this morning. And those who are not yet your people, I pray that your Spirit would work in their hearts, hearts to make them so, that they would see their need and cry out to Jesus as Savior and find life in Him and peace with you. So minister to us in these next few minutes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Thanksgiving, and uh, I've entitled this sermon, Thanksgiving, a paradigm for Sunday, because as I was looking at this passage, I was wondering what passage we ought to go to uh, to preach during this uh, Thanksgiving time of year. You know, Thanksgiving is a very interesting holiday. It's one of the few remaining actual Christian holidays. There's no other reason to have it. Um, there's no, uh, you, you know, things of, other things have kind of edged in to, uh, to take out uh, some of the focus from God in uh, Christmas time. And of course, we, uh, we focus on Jesus here. We uh, bring the focus back around to Christ here. And, but even Easter, which is about the resurrection of Christ. The culture really has taken that and done various different things with Easter, but Thanksgiving is one of those unique ones. It makes you ask the question, to whom are we giving thanks? The, the person out there who gets Thursday off for Thanksgiving and maybe even Friday off, to whom do they think they're giving thanks? It's a, it's a very uh, Christian uh, kind of holiday. And so, but as I was uh, wondering what passage we ought to uh, cover and talk about in regard to this. I was looking through some of David's psalms, and particularly this one here in First uh, Chronicles chapter 16. It was a powerful uh, one to me. Uh, we this week, as we take note of various things for which we're thankful, 
as we gather together, maybe as families, and maybe, maybe you're not able to. Uh, maybe you would, you would rather be with your family, but you're not able to, or maybe difficult things are going on. But usually during Thanksgiving, we take time to try to give thanks for the things that God has given us, our families, uh, the degree of comfort that we have, the degree of, of uh, opportunity that we have in our lives, maybe a, a roof over our head and, and things like that. And, and so we take this opportunity to give God thanks for the things that we have. But this passage today is going is to challenge us to look a little bit more deeply at that topic. This ch- passage is about uh, thanksgiving as well, but it's directly connected with some specific historical events in the life of Israel that, uh, that give some nuance and give some uh, power and, uh, and strength and, and urgency to thanksgiving. And so we want to talk about what's going on in this passage. Probably you, uh, you know, you're not off the top of your head familiar with what's going on in First Chronicles 15 and 16 and things like that. And unfortunately, our Bibles have headers that can kind of help give us some, uh, some insight there. But this passage is about the ark, the ark of the covenant, not Noah's ark, but the ark of the covenant. And it's going to be talking about the, the glorious experience that the people had with the ark of the covenant and the reason that matters, it's not just a piece of furniture. It's, you know, it would have been smaller than that piano, but, but it's much more significant than a piece of furniture. That's not really what it's about. The ark itself represents God, God's presence. And so they, they had a, a visible reminder, a physical thing that would go in an actual room behind an actual curtain, and, and it was to be carried in particular ways, and it was designed in a particular way because it was meant to remind the people truths about God and specifically about God's presence and truths about His presence. And we can, we can see that the ark was about God's presence when we think all the way back to uh, Numbers chapter 10 and and you, if you remember what was going on in uh, the wandering in the wilderness, you've got the nation of Israel, and they've got the tabernacle built, and they've got all this furniture and stuff, and they were traveling around from place to place, wandering in the desert. Well, how did they know to wander from here to there? How did they know to go from here to there? Well, there was a pillar of cloud, and there was a pillar of fire, and that pillar represented God, and it would move. It would go here and there, and when it moved, they would move. But it's interesting what what uh, Moses says in Numbers chapter 10. He says, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. So the pillar would move, and the first thing they'd do is pack up the tabernacle, and the ark would lead the way. So Moses is saying, when that ark is leading the way, it's being led out. When this piece of furniture, this chest is being carried, he was saying, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. God's presence was leading them around in the wilderness, and that was being shown in various ways. So it's important for God's people to follow God's presence. It's important for, people, for God's people to have God's presence, and that's why God had them construct the ark in the way that they did. Well, it, it developed over time, not only when they were wandering in the wilderness, but even if you remember when the nation came into the land of Canaan. In the book of Joshua, they, they had come right up to the border, and they, they come across the Jordan, and they come into the land. And remember, the first town that they really come to is Jericho. Well, how do they conquer Jericho? 
Do they, do they, do they sharpen their spears and, and, and uh, get their bows ready and attack it that way? That's not how they did it. If you remember reading in Joshua 6, it's a very unusual kind of assault. You've got all the people gathered together, the priests and, the, and, and uh, the, the Levites, and they would gather together. And what did they have leading the way? The ark. And they would wander around. They would walk around the city. And they, they'd go around the city for a total of seven times, leading this ark around the city. They could have been attacking. They could have been assaulting. They could have been building siege walls and doing all kinds of stuff, and that's not what they were doing. That's not what God had told them. God had given them this picture with the ark that I want you to take the ark and have it lead you around the city. And when it's gone around the city a complete number of times, seven, you're to blow the horns, you're to shout, and the walls just crumble because of God's action, because of what the presence of God had done in that pagan city. And so you see a very clear picture of this is sort of their battle strategy even when they come to Jericho. Well, history goes on and, and uh, time progresses and you can read in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4 a very interesting story. Uh, Saul is going to battle. He's the, he's the king. He, they, they end up taking the ark and going against the Philistines. And the reason they took the ark was not because we really need God's presence to go into battle. They took the ark because it's like a good luck charm. It had become a talisman for them. It seems like when we take the ark and ha we win, it's like wearing your lucky shoes, you know. It's, a, it's like not, you know, washing your baseball uniform when you're in high school, which is awful. I don't know why we did that. It was usually just the socks, you know. Just don't wash your socks and we'll win. I don't know why. It was terrible. But they, they, they treated it like that, like it was a good luck charm. It was a rabbit's foot. And so they go out to battle against the Philistines. What do you think happens when, uh, when God's presence get treat, gets treated like a rabbit's foot? They lost. They go into, a, into battle, and at first the Philistines were all scared. Oh, no, because the people were shouting, and they're thinking, now we're going to win. We've got the ark of God. And so the Philistines were all scared, and so they redoubled their efforts, and they actually defeated the Israelites. Captured the ark. How awful is that? The people of God no longer had the presence of God because they lost it in battle. And so the ark is uh, in Philistine's hand. They, it's a very interesting story in 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel in general is very interesting. They place the ark in the temple of Dagon. Dagon is their, uh, their Philistine god, and, and he's, he's propped up there. It's a statue of Dagon, this god, and, and they put the ark before him as if the ark is bowing down to Dagon, as if the ark has come to, 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 to pay uh, you know, homage to, to Dagon or whatever. Well, uh, you remember what happens overnight. They come in the next morning, and Dagon's laying on his face. And the people are like, oh, I hope it didn't, nobody saw that, right? And they prop Dagon back up, right, and, and, and put him over there. And, and they, they had thought that it was going to be, you know, the ark, the presence of, of God, the, 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 you know, Yahweh, the God of Israel, bowing down to Dagon. And instead, Dagon literally bowed down before the ark of the covenant. Well, so they prop him up on day one, and they come back in the next day. Remember what happened? He's on his face again, and his hands are broken off. And it was like, you know, he's broken Dagon, you know. Dagon fell on his face and fell apart uh, before the presence of God. And so uh, it's a very interesting story uh, that goes on there. It's God vindicating his presence, vindicating his holiness, vindicating himself before uh, Dagon, this false god. And uh, that was in Ashdod. Well, the longer the ark remained there in Ashdod, the more people started coming down with these sores. 
these weird sores and tumors on their body. They were getting sick. And so the people connected, very wisely connected. This started happening about the time that that ark from Israel came into our midst. Let's move it. And so they sent it to their neighbors, right? They send it down the road. Now, Ashdod is uh, part of the Philistine empire, so they send it down the road uh, to Gath, which is part of the Philistine empire, right? Well, the people in Gath suddenly start coming down with these weird tumors and sores, and they start getting sick, right? They're starting to understand it's connected with this ark, and then, of course, they send it on down the road, and it goes to one more place. It goes to Ekron, which is also in the Philistine Empire. They're not learning their lesson yet, but the people there get sick. So eventually, they finally wise up, right, that this God of, uh, of Israel is so powerful that even this box that represents him, that, 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 that the Israelite people had treated like a talisman, like a, like a rabbit's foot, even that box is, is causing sickness within these people. And so they say, here's what we're going to do. And they, they get a cart, they load it up on this cart, and they take a couple of, uh, of uh, mama cows who have just had babies, and they keep the babies pinned up, and they hook up these mama cows to the cart because they're thinking this will never happen. But what happens? The, the, the ark is loaded up on the cart, and, and the, these two mama cows who would never leave their babies, they go right into uh, Israel. They go right to uh, the people of Israel, to Kiriath-Jerim is the name of it, and they drop it off there. And so the people in Kiriath-Jerim, they, they're amazed when they see the ark show up of, a, of its own uh, volition, as it were. And, and the, the, the Philistine lords are standing there watching to make sure it gets out of their land because they're tired of being sick. And so the ark ends up in Kiriath-Jerim, and it stays there for about 20 years. And Kiriath-Jerim, by the way, is only about seven or eight miles uh, west of Jerusalem. But, but the ark has gone on this journey. The presence of God has been treated in this way. The presence of God has been, has been lost in battle. Of course, this is just a picture, right? This is just an image. God is not contained in a box. God is not confined in a piece of furniture, but it represents. It's a visual representation to the people of what God is like, and this is how they have treated Him. This is how they have treated their God. And of course, this is symbolic, you can see throughout, uh, throughout the nation, uh, the history of the nation of Israel, that very often this is how they treated God Himself, not just this piece of furniture, not just this chest. That's how they treated God so many times. And so it's just a picture, but it's a powerful picture. Well, uh, time has passed, and that was happening in the days of Saul. And, of course, the next king to come along is David. David's a very different king. And in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, David now has established his kingdom. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's brought, uh, you know, brought a, a, new, um, a, a new type of rule, a new kingship, a, an entirely new kingdom, as it were, into uh, existence. God is using him to this. And so David decides that he wants to go and bring that ark back. It is right for the people of God to have the presence of God in their midst, not in the borderlands, not somewhere out of town in the boondocks. The presence of God should be right here. Of course, the law stipulated that that was to be the case as well, etc. And so David uh, decides he's going to go to Kiriath-Jerim. He's going to grab the ark. He's going to bring the ark back. He's going to have the people do it. He makes a, a, big, a big deal out of it. It's a huge celebration, and there's lots of singing and trumpets and dancing and, and all of this stuff. But the idea is that he wants to bring the ark, the symbol of the presence of God, right back to be permanently in uh, dwelling amongst the people of God in 
their own capital city. And so in celebration of this event, that's an exciting thing if you think about for about 20 years or more, the presence of God has been banished. The ark has been banished, been lost in combat, been, been held captive as it were, and then even when it comes back into the land, it's sort of, you know, left out in the, in the woodshed kind of thing. It's not receiving the honor that it, that it is due, that the honor that God Himself is due. So when they're bringing it back, David makes a big, big deal of this. And he's got this huge celebration, and it's a, it's a massive thing, and uh, the people are giving honor to God and to His ark, this representation of His presence. And so in that, David composes this psalm. So that is the background. That, that's the background. This psalm that we read here was, was written to be sung on, on that occasion when the presence of God uh, in, in, symbolized by the ark was coming back in to dwell at the heart of the nation. And so with that background, we come to our passage. And you see I've broken it down kind of by paragraph there. You've got notes um, in, your, in your bulletin there that kind of can walk you through it. But, but uh, as I was looking at this, uh, of course, it's a, it's a song of thanksgiving, and, and it's, it's powerful to look at the things uh, for which they were thankful and how they expressed thanks, how David wanted the people to express their thanks. And first of all is to gather around the Lord. The first paragraph there, verses 8 through 13, he encourages them to gather around the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. The idea there is join together for this, like the celebration when the ark was first being brought uh, back into Jerusalem, like that celebration where the people were gathered. He encourages us to gather around the Lord. And of course, we're giving thanks for God's works, sing to Him, sing praises to Him, tell of all His wondrous works. We're talking of God, God's works. And if we were to sit down and, and take out a list, maybe some of you are list writers, I'm not really a list writer, but if you were to sit down and begin to list all the things, all the ways God has blessed you, could, could you ever complete that list? Could you ever stop writing that list? You would need another, you know, another book and you'd keep on writing and the more you thought about it, the more you'd realize you have to be thankful uh, to God for. But those, those general things that we are thankful to God for, the fact that our heart just beat another beat and we got to draw another breath, the fact that we got to be here this morning is a gift of God. It's God's mercy that we get to be here. We, we so often take it for granted because we'll probably be here next week and we'll probably get to draw another breath. We take it for granted because that's the way life goes, but that is evidence of God's ongoing faithfulness. He is that faithful that uh, we forget to uh, call to mind His faithfulness in even small things, but that's not really what He's talking about here. He's just not, not just talking about us being thankful for, you know, warm shoes when we're sitting in a cold auditorium and some of you wish you had warm shoes. That's not the kind of thing He's talking about here. How do I know that? Well, who is called to rejoice and give thanks in this paragraph? Just any old, any old buddy? Who is it? He says, those who seek the Lord. Those who seek the Lord are the ones who are called to give thanks to God. 
Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. Let those who seek the Lord rejoice. It is Israel, it's God's chosen people who are called to give thanks and to seek Him. And so, of course, the nation of Israel, and and by extension, we as Christians, have been blessed in in all kinds of big and small ways, uh, mundane and, and, and perhaps miraculous, that we have been blessed. But the focus here is on the fact of His saving works, not just His His general grace that He shows us, that we have the degree of health that we do and the degree of strength that we do, that we have people around us perhaps who love us and things like that. The focus here is particularly that we would remember His saving works, God's redemption of us. So I think even from this first paragraph, we've we've got a point of application here. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually, he says. Seek Him so that you can take refuge in Him. That's what Israel needed. That's what you and I need. He says, seek Him so that you can take refuge in Him. Seek Him. Seek refuge in Him from the doubts and the fears of life. Seek refuge in Him. Seek refuge in Him from your own guilt and your own sinfulness. Folks, you have no other place to run from your own guilt and your own sinfulness than to Jesus Himself. And so seek Him and find hope. And of course, this can be done in private. Uh, Many of us start our day uh, seeking the Lord. We we, uh, read His Word. We pray. We call to mind God's saving work, and and we should do that. We do so in the family. Uh, We encourage our families to do that, etc. But But this psalm primarily has to do with public worship. When he says, seek the Lord in His strength, he's talking about not only you in your prayer closet with your Bible open, not only you by yourself, but primarily that we as a congregation, that God's people would come together to seek the Lord together. That's the focus of what's going on here. And of course, that's what we do on Sundays. When we come together We come to seek refuge in the Lord together. And so, David would have us do that. The Lord would have us do that, even from this passage, as the people are congregated together. They are to do so around the presence of the Lord, around the ark. And we are to do so here, around the presence of the Lord. And so, first of all, we we gather. Second of all, he continues on and in uh, verses 14 through 22, and he tells us to remember His covenant. Verse 14, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember His covenant forever. A friend of mine often says, remember not to forget. And I think that's what we need to do. Remember not to forget God's covenant. And think about the context this is in, that Israel as a nation was founded upon a covenant that God had made with them. When God came to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and began to make promises, which develop and and, and are kind of codified into a, a fuller covenant, but God had made promises to Abraham. He had made a covenant. And God promised Abraham particularly, among other things, that God would give him a land to him and to his offspring. 
This land, it's going to be yours, and this land, it's going to be uh, for your offspring. And of course, that's what we've been talking about in Genesis. But if you think about uh, what happens in the nation of Israel, you think about what happens, we're not even to the point where it's the nation of Israel. It's Abram and Sarai. And it's, pre- it's pretty early on. There are two of them, <laughs> right? Not much of a nation, right? What's going to happen uh, to this nation? And we think, all right, the promise has been made that, that they're to receive the land, but it's two of them. And they're old. They can't conquer it. They haven't multiplied. They don't have other family they can, they can bring in, etc. So it looks like they're never going to inherit the land. And then, of course, you go on to Isaac, and you've got problems with Isaac. And then you go on to Jacob, and you've got problems with Jacob. And, and there are times when, when various of these move and live in other places. And then you've got Jacob's sons, and then you've got Joseph who gets sold down into slavery. It looks like they're never going to inherit this land. It's always a problem. And then by the end of Genesis, what do you have happen? You have the whole nation, which has got, you know, it started with these two, and now it's like, you know, it's, it's less than 100 people by the end of Genesis, but at least they're growing. But they all move out of the land. That's how Genesis concludes. They move down into Egypt. It looks like they're not going to have it, whether, whether they're being kept out because of their enemies, people who will uh, fight them, or, or, or perhaps it's slavery, as they're kept in slavery in Egypt. It's their own sin, keeping them out uh, at times. That, that's the kind of thing that's going to keep them from inheriting. And, of course, those are problems we see all through um, the book of, of Judges. Particularly, you have threats from that. You've got you know, threats from famine. And that's why some of them leave. You've got threats of their own cowardice. At times, they're unwilling to go in and take the land that God promised them because they're cowards. You've got the problem of their sin. And I know I said sin already, but it's worth mentioning again. That's the biggest cause. It looks like these people are never going to inherit this land. God had made this land promise to the patriarchs, but it just seems so often like they would never get to have this land. And what's happening in 1 Chronicles 16? David the king is in the land, reigning over the tribes to whom the promise had been given that they would have the land. He's in the land. And he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant right into the heart of the land. The presence of God dwelling with the people of God in the land that God had promised. It's happened. It's happened. They have been delivered into the land. They have been granted this land. God has made a promise, and he kept the promise. And God made the promise a long time ago. And he has kept the promise they are right there in the land. What God has promised, God fulfills. And so it's important for us. I mean, we're not in this story. We live in a very different context, but remember the Lord's promises. He keeps His promises. And sometimes you have to wait a while, don't you, to see the fulfillment of that promise. They had to wait generations, hundreds of years, to see the fulfillment of God's promises. And so maybe you and I could... Uh, be a little patient as well. But to those who are weary from trying to do something that will gain them God's favor, running that treadmill, running that treadmill, trying to uh, find the smile of God somehow that God would have favor upon you, here's the promise that He makes in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says Jesus. That's a promise. 
But to those who are suffering and they can't seem to find an end to their suffering, they finish one season of suffering and something new comes up and they enter into another season of suffering and then that is just about to come to a close and something else is piled on top of it and they can't find a way out. To you, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Did you know, sufferer, that in Christ there is a promise for you to receive comfort? And some of you need that comfort. And so, let's call to mind all the times that God has made promises, and let's call to mind all the times that God has kept His promises. And maybe you're thinking in your own life, well, I don't know, has God often kept promises? Well, He has. But even when you can't remember them in your own life, you've got the testimony of God's people. God makes promises, even massive, unbelievable promises, and He keeps His promises. That's the God we serve. And so, our second paragraph here reminds us to remember His covenant. And one of the blessings we get when we come together for church on Sunday is that we remember and help others remember the promises of God and that we ought to keep finding rest in them. Because we scatter from here, we'll go out this week and, and we'll gather tonight and we'll praise God and we'll uh, eat you know, desserts together and we'll sing songs together and whatnot, but we'll scatter, we'll go about our week and in our own life, on our own, we begin to forget the promises of God. Or we begin to uh, forget that God really does keep His promises. We begin to forget all the promises He has already kept. And when we join back together, we remind one another in conversation before and after the service from, uh, in our singing and from the preaching of God's Word, we are reminded of the promises of God He has made to us and that He keeps them. We're reminded what they are. We're reminded how He has kept them in the past and that He will do so for me. So we need this reminder. We need to join together and gather around the Lord, and we need to remember His covenant. And thirdly, we need to proclaim His greatness. Verses 23 through 27, proclaim His greatness. His saving works on behalf of Israel were not meant for their benefit alone. He says, sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. The blessings that the people of Israel had received were not for them alone. They were for them, and they were blessings for them, and they were glorifying to God, and they were to be told of far and wide. Likewise with us, God's saving work on our behalf is not meant for our benefit alone. God works savingly for us, and we are the, are the, are the beneficiaries of that. We praise God for that. We praise God that He has redeemed us. We know our own rebellion. We know uh, the status, the, the place we would be if it weren't for God's saving work, and we give Him great glory, and that is, that is a good thing for us to do, and, and it is wonderful that God has saved us, and, and that, is, that is massive, and it is glorifying to Him, and we ought to praise God for that among the nations, taking that message of the gospel to the people around us, not just sitting on it, not just us in here so that we can kind of warm our hands around that fire together, but that we would praise God among the nations for His saving work. 
we also are to be a testimony to the world around us. And Jesus told his disciples that they were to take that gospel to all the world, to all nations. They were to make disciples of those nations. Take that message. When we have a connect group at our house, Gabriel has, I usually don't use names, but I don't have a lot of boys, and so Gabriel uh, used to very patiently wait. So we, we eat the meal during connect group, and then towards the end of the meal, but before Bible study time is when you get dessert. And that's a tight window, okay? Not for us, because I stand in the kitchen normally, and I, you know, eat dessert whenever I want to. But uh, he's an obedient boy, and he was waiting for that window. And he was waiting for someone to come and tell him, Gabriel, it's time for dessert now. Then he would get dessert. But often, he, uh, he just wouldn't get it. Often, the message never made it to him. The rest of us found out it was dessert time, but Gabriel was in his room playing, or he was downstairs with somebody else or whatever, and the message never got to him, and we were enjoying dessert. And we have some good desserts in our Connect group. I feel sorry for all the other Connect groups because we have really good desserts. And so we're enjoying it, and we're talking about it, and we're having a good time, and we're eating all of it. And then Gabriel missed his window. And Gabriel comes upstairs and he asks, is it dessert time yet? It was. <laughs> and dessert was fabulous, son, but you missed it. You see, we treat it as if it were our message. It was the message to benefit us alone. Now, did it, would it diminish our enjoyment also to go and tell Gabriel, by the way, son, you can have cake now. That wouldn't diminish ours at all. It would actually increase it because you get to see uh, the lad enjoy it as well. And we are, as Christians, not to be uh, cul-de-sacs. The, the, the message is not just for our enjoyment alone and then done. You need to tell the boy it's dessert time also. You need to tell the boy there is blessing to be had. I've benefited from it, and you can too. We are to be a testimony, a witness to the nations around us. And so our point of application here is to sing of God's greatness, to tell of God's greatness, to declare God's greatness. Teach your kids how wonderful it is to know God's grace. Tell those around you what God has done for you. Come to church on Sundays and read and be ready to read God's Word together and to sing to God and listen to the Word being taught and give God glory for the way that He has saved us in Christ, and He's given us peace and communion with God. Be ready for that, to come and talk and come and tell of it, and then tell your neighbor, tell those around us about this feast that we have. It glorifies God when we do that, and it reminds us what a treasure that we have in Christ. And by the way, lest we, lest we think it's no big deal to be in God's presence, lest we think that's just like an added benefit like having dessert, right? The, the, the bar to have dessert is not that high, right? You've got you to make it there in time, and there needs to be dessert, and those are about the only things. But, but lest we treat the presence of God lightly, even in this very story, not in this account of it, but there's a parallel account that you read about in, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And if you remember that story, it tells the story of them bringing the ark from Kiriath-Jerim. It's coming toward Jerusalem. And the ark is supposed, it's got these rings on the side of this box, supposed to have these long poles that people can carry, the poles on their shoulder, and thus there's no danger whatsoever of the ark being tipped or dropped or touched because it's a holy, it's a holy item representing God's holy presence. 
And so it's to be carried in a particular way, but that's not what happened when they were transporting it. They thought it would be better to put it on a cart. So they load the thing somehow, and they put it on the cart, and it's being, it's being towed behind these oxen, and, uh, and the oxen stumble, or, or they hit a bump in the road, or whatever, and the, and the ark tips. It starts to tip, and there's this man named, named Uzzah. And I want to read you the story of Uzzah very briefly from, from 2 Samuel chapter 6. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Now remember, it was supposed to be carried on poles. But because it was on a, on a, on a cart, it, had, it was, you know, tip and sliding. And so Uzzah sticks out his hand to touch it, to hold it, to steady it, lest it get dirty. Lest it tip over, lest it fall. In verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Now, if we come at this story and just think, poor Uzzah, we miss the point. I mean, in the end, poor Uzzah. But we have to understand what the ark is it's not a piano, it's not just a piece of furniture. It's not just some special thing that's being carried and don't you dare scratch it or dent it or, 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 or mar it in any way. Don't get it dirty. No, there, there are greater concerns. This represents the presence of God. This represents the presence of holy God. And so when it tipped and Uzzah reached out his hand, he was doing so because he, he didn't want the ark to, to get dirty. He didn't want the ark to, to, to be, uh, you know... Um, besmirched by falling in the dirt or, or scratched in some way or, or be dishonored. So to protect it from being dirtied and dishonored, damaged, he stuck out his hand. And the message, the message was not, you better follow the rules. The message was much greater than that. The message was, Uzzah, the dirt is cleaner than you. You're the one who defiles it by your touching Uzzah, you have sin. You can't, you can't just touch the presence of God like you can touch the piano. This is a holy representation of the holy God. And so Uzzah reaches out his hand, not understanding the full picture, but we need to understand the full picture that man has sin. And the sin, though I've washed my hands, and though, uh, though, though man doesn't parade his sin always before other people around him, it's, it's there in his heart, and it is defiling. And God himself is holy. He's all the way holy, and sin cannot remain in his presence. And so there's a consequence for sin, and that consequence is judgment. And we see that played out with the man Uzzah, a sinful man who reaches out and touches the holy presence of God and pays that penalty. Go back to 1 Chronicles 16, and we see there in verse 23 that we're instructed to tell of His salvation from day to day. Israel had seen God's salvation militarily, 
uh, miraculously with, with the things that weather had done and, and the, the parting of the Red Sea and the, and the parting of the Jordan River and all these kind of, They had seen all aspects of, of salvation from enemies and from drought and famine and on and on. But the story of Uzzah reminds us that there is more at stake than just the earthly enemies from whom we need deliverance. There's more at stake than just the deliverance that we need perhaps from a health struggle or from a broken relationship or those other things as important as they may be. There is a much deadlier problem that we all have to deal with. And it's an enemy that isn't out there. It's an enemy that's in here. And it's our sin. And the only way we can have that enemy defeated is if there is someone who did not have that sin problem who could give us credit for His righteousness, who could take our sin debt upon Him to pay the penalty that we deserve. And that someone, of course, is Jesus. And He is the only way that we can remain in God's presence and not suffer a worse fate than Uzzah's. I mean, we read about Uzzah, and we think about him dying uh, just for touching that. We think he, I mean, he fell dead. And that's not the worst thing that can happen to you is to fall dead. But Uzzah is a picture about the judgment that we all deserve because, because for everyone, uh, in the state we are born in, as soon as we come into contact with God's presence, that's the judgment that we deserve as well because of our own sin. And so David would have us here sing of the salvation that there is in the Lord. And of course, the greater salvation that you and I know about is the salvation from the greater enemy, which is our own sin. We've got problems in the world, and we've got those that we dislike and, and stand against and all that kind of stuff, but of, of all the things that we may even hate in the world, our own sin is the biggest problem. It resides right here, and it defiles what we do. So what do we do? We must have one. We must have one who has been obedient. There must have, there must have been someone who, who has lived an obedient life, and we must have the credit for that. And that's what we have in Christ. When we put our faith in Him, we find Him to be our salvation. We find Him to change us into such a way to, to, to give us acceptance with God in such a way that when we come into contact with God's presence, rather than being like Uzzah who dropped dead from it, when we come into contact with God's presence, we find acceptance. We find because we are in Christ by faith that we have God not as judge who will put us to death, but as our Father who receives us and welcomes us with joy. We find salvation to that degree that our sin is put on Him and His righteousness is credited to us. And now, knowing the wonder and having peace with this wonderful God because of Jesus, we can't wait to do what he talks about in verse 28, which is worship the sovereign one. Verse 28, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Do you hear the joy? Do you hear the, the excitement about what this deliverance is like? That God has given us, that, that, we would, that we would praise God in this way, that we would bring an offering, come before Him, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness and tremble before Him all the earth. 
Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be, get, be glad. Let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. We come to a place of being able to worship God rather than, rather than feeling like the story of Uzzah is a sad story about a man who made a mistake. We come away thinking, that should be me, but instead I have acceptance with this God. And so I, I become like these trees, and I become like this sea, and I become like all of these, these peoples and nations and all of these who are giving praise to God, and I want to do that. I want to worship Him all the more as I realize I deserve to be Uzzah, and instead I get to have peace with God. I get to have access to God's very holy presence, and I'm welcomed there because of Jesus, and I want to worship God. And so our application is simple, worship and praise the Lord who reigns over all the earth. And worship is a part of our our personal lives, of course. We do that when we get up in the morning, we read our Bible, and we pray, and we worship God. We call to mind what He has done, and that's a wonderful and beautiful thing, and, and, and we benefit from that. I encourage you to do that. But this kind of worship takes it to a whole other level. And not only do I encourage you to do this, it's actually commanded in Scripture that we would do this, that we would join together and worship the Lord together. Author to the Hebrews tells us, reminds us, encourages us, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works and don't forsake the gathering together. Because otherwise, how are you going to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. How are you going to worship together as the people of God if you don't join together? And so we worship the sovereign one. And finally, we give him thanks. Give him thanks. Verse 34 wraps all of this up, brings it all back around. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Now we know why. I mean, we thought we knew why before. And now, after having been reminded of what we are in this passage, we are all the more prepared to give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. I've called this a paradigm for Sundays because Thanksgiving is a wonderful time of year when we join together and, and, uh, and we think about uh, the things for which we should give God thanks And that's every Sunday. That's every Sunday. It's like a guide for how we ought to do Sundays, that that we come together and we remind one another of where God has brought us as sinful people, that He has made us acceptable to Him. In Christ, we are His very own family, His children. And we remind one another of that, and we we praise God for that, and we trust Him to keep His promises, and and we worship Him, and we give Him thanks together. And so this this passage would have us do that greatly, the final application, give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love. And who knows the steadfast love of God better than Christians? Those who have experienced God's redeeming love in Christ. And we know that He will keep His promise. All the promises that He has made, He keeps 
And you and I need to join together and remind one another of that regularly. And that's what we do while we're here. And that's the reason we preach the way we preach, so that we would remember what God has done. We would remember what God has promised to do and that we would remember that He promises to redeem all those who will trust in Him so that it's not just us, but it's a message for our neighbors as well. David's great psalm here was a wonderful psalm of thanksgiving was written so that Israel would praise the Lord for His faithfulness to His people and His covenants and and remember the importance of having God in their midst. And as Christians, we have God's presence in a far greater and more personal and more lasting way because of what we have in Christ Jesus. His presence is right here. In Him, we have our sins forgiven. In Him, we have righteousness sufficient to please our holy God, who is our Father. In Him, we have access to God the Father and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We have God's presence. We know God's presence. We have been reconciled to God's presence, and it is a wonderful thing. And we Christians of all people ought to be the most thankful. Praise God for the abiding presence of God that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning. Having been reminded of your promises regarding the nation of Israel and seeing how you have fulfilled them and even in David's time and seeing how thankful they were to see such a fulfillment that the the representation of your presence was brought back into the midst of the people of God and what a joyful day. But it was just a representation. It It was an ark. It was a piece of furniture. It was outside of them. And we as Christians rejoice that we have the presence of God in our very midst. We have been reconciled to you in Christ. And we don't have an ark that is outside of us. We don't have a physical representation, a shadow that is outside of us. We have the reality within us. We have the truth of the indwelling presence of God by means of your Holy Spirit within our hearts, within our church. And we rejoice and we give you Thanks, and we give you praise. And this week, as we will do that with family or in other ways, may we call to mind this week the greatness of this salvation that we have. And even as we join together tonight to do the same, may you be lifted up and may you work in our hearts to remind us of these truths of the gospel that are ours in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. So I would